that's what the repetition of the preaching of the gospel is because I view, I view it like a like a tumbler falling you know people are just spinning locks um, you know this is to those of you who are under 40 they used to have locks before they just <laughs> scanned your face and sent it to a, um, a data farm in China Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as always with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Yeah, doing great, Nick. A special Stand Firm happy birthday to our own Matt Kennedy today. Matt, what's on the menu for the birthday dinner? I'm going to have my wife cook the lamb, a big roast lamb, and eat it. And the kids can't join in because they're in online classes. So it's just going to be me by myself. It's quite a picture. They're on online classes during dinner time? Uh, yeah, Wednesday is crazy. They have uh, the, the online schedule goes all the way. One of, we have six kids, so one of them is in class almost all day, all day, I would say. So. Man. It's one day we can have lunch together, which is awesome. Do you do? Do you put on like your LARPing costume, where you dress up like a <laughs> like a 16th century knight? <laughs> one of the I'm kids on the loot. Yeah, right. That's <laughs> funny. Well, listen, guys. Uh, the news in the Anglican world this week is Bishop William Love, the Bishop of the Diocese of Albany in the Episcopal Church, has been found by something called a hearing panel. This is a group of important lay people and clergy. He's been found to have failed to abide by what's called the discipline and worship of the Episcopal Church and thus to have violated his ordination vows. His crime, he told the clergy under his care that they were not allowed to perform same-sex marriage rights, the universally held position of the church until, oh, about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> In other words, he continued to proclaim the word of God to his church, only to find that that word was now not in accordance with the discipline and worship of the Episcopal Church. So what had until the last general convention been something like a local option in TEC, some bishops allowed these rights and some did not, has now become, with the passage of a resolution at convention, compulsory. All bishops with this ruling are now required to allow clergy under their authority to perform these rights. And this is, of course, disheartening, especially for Bishop Love and for the people of his diocese. But there's another sense in which this is just the next logical step along the path that the progressive mainline church has been, quote, progressing along for 50 years now. J.D., you referred to this as a parable of the intolerance of the secular world. And, of course, you're including atheistic churches that have remade the Lord in their own image under that secular umbrella, I assume. A parable of the intolerance of the secular world toward any true belief, any submission to an authority outside the enlightened progressive self. So no serpent, God didn't really say much of anything. So of course, Bishop Love must be brought up on charges and put out of a job. What are your first reactions to this news, guys? I'm not surprised, I suppose, you know, yeah. like you say, this is a, the logical progression of, of, of events that we should have expected way back in 2003, um, actually probably longer ago. You know, I, I remember when um, women's ordination was a big fight in the Episcopal Church and the, the Episcopal Church swore up and down that they would have a place for bishops who conscientiously cannot go forward with the ordination of uh, women. And that went away, you know, pretty fast. And uh, we should have just expected that the same thing was going to happen here. It's it's the logic of the logic of the of 
those pushing for these kinds of changes. The logic of the progressive is, look, this is equality. This is, you are, you are uh, by not affirming an LGBT person and his or her desire to marry, uh, wants to marry, <laughs> wants to marry, you are, you are dehumanizing the person. Uh, you are you are uh, hating the essence of who that person is, and so if you if you have a, a church leadership has adopted that philosophy, then they can't let people like Bishop Love stand. There there can be no conscientious objection, because the conscientious objection is unconscionable. How how dare anyone think of a of a human being in this way? Um, so immediately when this language starts being used, especially in, in, in those who use it, gain power. Here, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, this is this is how long a polite disagreement or a polite decision comes to be made. You know, it's all over, but the shouting. Well, there's not a lot of shouting in in nice, polite Episcopal circles, but there's a lot of inexorable move toward what we have decided. This will take 17 years to to come to fruition. Um, but no, I agree with you totally. I mean, and I've been saying this forever. Like, if you if you actually listen to the argumentation behind um, the people with whom we disagree about this, then then it does make sense that when you had power, when you had the authority, and your genuine sort of conviction was that that people who would restrict, for instance, the sacrament of marriage to just a man and a woman, um, well, they were they were in fact not just simply being cruel, but sort of abandoning their their ordination vows. They were they were they should be punished. They should be. Um, uh, brought up and censure. And so this sort of middle way that we've been living in where it's sort of, you know, well, it's just, it, that just depends on, on personal option and sort of, and it, it all comes down to your personal opinion. There's never, there has been for, for a probably decade, no actual appeal to any exegetical support one way, or really one way or the other, but particularly in the progressive church, it's not like people are still arguing about, you know, whether Paul was really aware of committed same-sex relationships or something. I mean, there's, there has been no actual a movement on that because in part people like Robert Gagnon, you know, did the heavy lifting, um, actually learned Aramaic, uh, did all of the uh, lex uh, sort of read all the lexicons and wrote the giant book that most people who even argue against him can't even read. Um, and so now we find ourselves in a situation where the logic has finally played out. And these people, what's going to be interesting is these people who are, you know, have been trying to live in this middle ground. Um, I'm thinking bishops, you know, who have been able to say, well, I personally am against it, um, but, you know, I realize the breadth of the church, and so I'm going to allow for local option in various churches and sort of pastoral, you know, this this distinction between sort of a theological or sort of a convictional reality on one hand and a quote-unquote pastoral um, use on the other. Well, those people are either going to retire or have retired or are no longer important because when the next generation, however, whatever age they come, who actually believes this comes to power, well, then it's not going to be a gentleman's agreement or a, or a general person's disagreement anymore. It's going to be what we see with Bishop Love, that you have, despite the fact that the, the we have been saying for centuries that the uh, most uh, sort of local uh, reality of an Episcopal polity is the diocesan, you know, and the bishop has the authority um, in, individually to, to uh, exercise his pastoral prerogatives within that, well, we now disagree because it only to the extent that you agree with the rest of us, will you be allowed to exercise that? And that's what we see with Bishop Love. And so he's, you know, he, he fought the good fight and he has run the good race, but you know, his time as an Episcopal diocesan may, I mean, as Episcopal Bishop may have, uh, have now come to an end. Who knows? We'll see what the disciplinary, the, the sentencing hearing comes out. Um, he's been, he's been found guilty, but he has yet to be sentenced. So, 
you know, I'm sure the stockades are getting um, rebuilt right now. Or <laughs> Wouldn't you say that in a sense, this is a clarifying thing? I mean, we, we are no less strident in what we believe than the higher ups in the Episcopal church are about what they believe in the ACNA, for instance, in which we are all ordained. If a bishop decided to allow same-sex unions, he would be brought up on charges, right? Like we would do the same thing from the other way. And in a sense, now we can see what is actually believed by these churches rather than these fake quote unquote gentlemen's agreements where, oh, you do what you do. That's fine. I'll do what I do. We all, what we all really believe is that we should be nice. Yep. Now we're actually seeing what's underneath. Oh, absolutely. And it, it never has been, it never has been nice. It's uh, the, the, maybe some of the bishops who take the Orthodox side thought that they were being nice or being dealt with nicely, but, but let one of them step out of line. And well, we see what happens. I have this happen with uh, Bishop Love. Um, it, what it also does, and I think you're right. It does. It makes, it makes the lines clear. You have a, a church that embraces the gospel and a church that, that rejects the gospel, I think is, is, is those two sides are, are pretty much clear now. And we can talk about how gospel, how the gospel plays into this because yeah, a lot sure. of the, a lot of those people who are arguing um, for some kind of compromise would argue this is not a gospel issue. This right. is just uh, some kind of adiaphora that we can disagree about and, and, and still uh, remain at the same table. But, but I think one of the thing, one of the one of the things is, that's revealed is that argument within the Episcopal Church is now done. I mean, it, it, it from even if from the conservative side it was or. In my, I put conservative in scare quotes, even if from the conservative side, it, it could possibly be something we could live with if, as long as it's not impacting our diocese. From the other side, it was never adiaphora. It was never even thought of in those terms. It was thought of as justice. It was thought of as, as this is the way we have to go to be a just church. And I think the conservative, quote unquote, conservative bishops who, who banded together um, under the, uh, it was it the Anglican um, communion, communion partners, communion partners. That's what it is. Yeah, the bishops who who banded together under the communion partners, kind of band of brothers, the last stand of the Orthodox within the Episcopal Church. Where are they? What like Robert the Bruce and Braveheart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Love was the only one who stood firm, right? It's true. What, what, where, what, where is Brewer? Where, where are the bishops who who have in the past claimed orthodoxy? What are they doing in their diocese? What they're doing is they are allowing, as as the shepherds of their people, they are facilitating their members of their flock doing something unrepentantly that God, in uh, through Saint Paul, said will keep them out of the kingdom of heaven. I, I don't I don't know that there's any clearer picture of the New Testament or the, the John ten picture of the hireling than mm. than that. I mean, someone who stands by and lets his people be devoured um, by this false teaching. And there's no, if you want to stay in the Episcopal Church in good standing, there is no choice now. that you have to do that. So that's why I don't think the Anglican partner bishops or community partner bishops can stay in good, in, in good conscience. If they stay, they are betraying the faith. They're betraying the Christ and their flock. Well, a couple of things there. I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think that this brings highlights why the the change on marriage was so significant. Because, you know, when people hear about 
prohibitions and um, and sort of God's design for human sexuality, you know, there's a there's an immediate appeal to well, I know people that are broken in this way. I know people that struggle with you know all sorts of sexual um, sins, and so it seems so unloving and uncaring to exclude this entire group of people from the church. And that's usually how the argument goes. But that's not what we're actually saying, and that was never the case. Like any pastor for two thousand years, I mean, Paul wrote about this. Like there's been an awareness of the way that sin works itself out in human relationships, uh, men, women, and otherwise. And that is why we appeal to the law for our guidance, and we, we repent of where we've transgressed and find absolution in the gospel. I mean, that's, that's not a new thing. But what was a new thing was that all of a sudden, the actual pastoral appreciation of how God deals with sinners, which is by absolving them through the blood of his son, um, raising them to new life and faith, and sending them out in grace— that pastoral uh, sort of way of dealing with people was changed to a affirmation. And so, you know, as opposed to dealing with sinners, we began to just affirm all brokenness, all manner of brokenness. And so when we actually changed the understanding of marriage, it went from acknowledging that there are people who wrestle and, and are stumbling and are in need of God's grace, just as we all are, and perhaps in different ways, but at the same base level, to actually affirming this, what the Bible has explicitly pro- prohibited, well, that changes everything. And that's why, if anyone's listening and is not aware of this, that's why it became such a big deal. It wasn't that all of a sudden the pastors like you and I are like we suddenly changed our pastoral understanding of how broken people need to be brought to repentance and redemption in Christ. It was all of a sudden, what does the church actually communicate about sin and redemption with respect to human sexuality and to be yoked with and a part of of a system that is that is well as you said that is that is communicating something that god has said is false about how there should be relationally comported is beyond the pale it's beyond the pale and these communion partners had up until now stood firm to some degree on this and bishop love was the last one and he is going to be taken down i, t- I spoke at a conference this last weekend um, and I was trying in my talk to try and diagnose what what theological change had taken place, or what the what theological foundations that progressive embrace progressives have embraced, and and what's what's driving it. And uh, within the within the ecclesiastical realm, I think it's it has to do with the with the wholesale departure from classical anthropo- anthropology, the study of who of what who what human beings are post fall. Right. So uh, there's that classic image that Irenaeus draws of the of the mosaic shattered the, the image of god within yeah. uh, broken and and so christ comes to take that image up and restore it but within i guess for progressive circles the the idea of the image of god i think has has been melded with the kind of cultural view of the self where you know if you just dive deep enough you're going to find your true authentic self the the sterling shimmering luminous you that's going to be uh, more special than anything and then once you find that unspeakably beautiful self um then you have to you know peel back the layers of everything is trying to make this, that self conform to the external world and you live in accordance with who you are and that brings happiness right i think that's the anthropology that the progressive has have, have launched onto but instead of the shiny luminous self that's your imago day right so you the way the imago day is spoken of in, in liberal circles and increasingly in, in evangelical circles is, is that real deep in, in, in the authentic self that once you find it, that's yes. your salvation. So this is why when someone does the deep dive and finds out, hey, I'm gay, 
that's their God created self. They found that's the Imago day. And if you, if you say, no, I, you know, I love you, but I, the reason I, because I love you, I can't affirm what you're doing. That doesn't compute. That's incomprehensible. How can you love me when my true self is this and you're rejecting my true self? It's just incomprehensible. So we have two very different definitions of love now because we have two different anthropologies at work. Amen. That's right. It sounds like a joke, but the theology actually is God don't make no junk. And it's a, it's a leap from the creation to life. And it's a jump right over Genesis three. It's like, is Genesis three in your Bible or is it not in your Bible? Because I agree fundamentally, God don't make no junk, but something happened after God made before where we are now. And we got to do better than God don't make no junk. Well, and I would say that it's an, it's a jump over Genesis one and two also, because you know, the Imago Dei has forgotten who the day is in this, um, in this equation, you know, because the, the image of God, you know, God is a cipher at this point for, you know, like Cartesian epistemology, really, you know, like I think therefore I am, therefore I am God. I mean, that's, that's the way that, that people, you know, I feel this way and it must be true because who are you to say, you know, you and what army? It's like, well, the army of the angel of death, which continues to circle and bring up into question all of your pretensions to be God, will continue to thwart your aspirations to the throne. And we will continue to preach, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, which is that he actually is a good creator in male and female created them, as the old King James said. And yet uh, uh, Genesis 3 will also be incredibly diagnostic for how that good has been shattered. You know, if not, it's like, uh, I think of the old Lutheran sort of radical reformer, um, Matthias Flavicus Aurelicus, you know, argued that the entire image had been destroyed. You know, there's lots of scholastic writing about that. And there's a certain sense in which you can understand what he meant. But the point is that it's not right. It's not good and shiny. And it certainly isn't something to be celebrated out of the promise of redemption in Christ, you know? And so I think it, um, it you're exactly right, Matt, that this, this whole discussion of the Imago Dei, particularly in kind of, you know, we say progressive Christian circles, but we're really talking about regressive sliding back towards paganism. You know, it's not, there's nothing progressive about this. They're just starting to continue to, uh, the water is just rising left and right. Um, but in progressive Christian quote unquote circles, this, whenever you hear the Imago Day, you know, you're going to brace yourself for some baptized version of modern um, secular anthropology, really pagan anthropology. Uh, which posits the seat of the soul or, or the, the, the foundation of human identity in sort of a self, self-aware, um, self-chosen place. And of course, that's totally opposite to the entire message of scripture. And of course, the whole Judeo-Christian enterprise, which has been from the beginning, you did not create yourself. Where were you when I put the heavens and the stars and the earth? You know, you are our creature and albeit a rebellious fallen one. And yet this is how God so loved the world that he sent his son to save even his at enmity rebellious creatures. And so the, the fact that we have lived through this sort of decoupling, you know, conscious uncoupling, like Quinnett <laughs> uh, Paltrow has been more akin to like a, a branch being twisted off, you know, than any cut because, you know, this has been 20 years plus, I mean, Bishop Spong's book, we talk about all the time, came out in 1992 or something, you know, and that was the, that was the blueprint, you know, that was like the Gramsci, um, you know, socialist model for the long march to the institutions. And the problem is, well, like just with the schools, the people who 
who were supposedly put up there to have the courage to resist any of this basically made a Faustian bargain back in the 90s, as far as I can tell, to keep their heads down, their mouths shut, and they could keep their own precious little bigoted convictions to themselves as long as they weren't too vocal about it. And well, here we are, you know, here we are. And so, and I have, and we have people in the Episcopal Church, you know, conservatives in the Episcopal, quote unquote, conservatives in the Episcopal Church who have these convictions, who can, who maintain, you know, will probably not change their, um, or at least haven't so far changed their uh, convictions, and yet find it impossible, if not in, in it, ill-advised to be to certain, to teach, you know, to preach or teach or equip their congregation about how to actually push back on these things. You know, there's no Bible studies or, you know, um, uh, sort of adult education forums about the, the lie of, transgenderism you know there's no um sort of the defense of traditional marriage like teach your middle school kids you know not to be angry bigots but you know joyful proclaimers of the fact that god has not left you alone in this world you know 13 year old girl to figure out yourself find your inner unicorn princess or whatever like he's actually created you as a beloved beautiful creature reflective of him and yes you have some troubles but take heart he has overcome this world i mean that's 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 just something that's now i mean has been difficult i mean nick and i found it straightforward it was difficult in an episcopal context even a conservative one to actually put some equipping teeth on these things. But I think with Bishop Love's century now, it's going to be tantamount to bigotry and sort of being a false shepherd almost. And that's going to, I think you're right, Nick, at the very least, make the distinctions much more clearer. And, you know, as Luther said, the work of theology is about making distinctions. So at least we'll have an either or, and we can, you know, pick your, uh, pick, pick your side and, and run with it. <laughs> that's where that that's that that's where the gospel comes into this, isn't it? Because that's the the because this whole view of the self is predicated on a kind of self salvation. Uh, you know, you find you find your your life and truth and happiness within. Then the gospel hinges on the alternate um, anthropology, where where we are shattered we are fallen and we use the word of god to identify those aspects of our of our inner nature that are skewed so you know the christian isn't surprised when he looks within or she looks within and finds you know wow i want to do something really badly and i've always wanted to do something really badly that the bible says i shouldn't do oh dear the, the, the christian doesn't say that oh well i guess the bible's wrong because my inner <laughs> Herself is, is telling me the way. The Christian says, "Yeah, okay, that's right. That's who I am. I'm a fallen creature. These are one of the. This is one of those desires. I don't know if I was born with it. If I was predisposed with it, it doesn't really matter because I'm a fallen creature. And here is this thing that that is driving me into the darkness. And so we've been. Thanks be to God. God sent His Son Jesus to." Amen die on the cross to to take away the guilt of that but also i can confess to him and he can cleanse me of all unrighteousness um and that's that's the gospel that's the good news you want that you don't want to i i see the this is just subjective this is just a externally I'm, i'm looking at people from the outside but people who embrace this idea that within lies your hope are some of the most despondent despairing anxious Hmm. unhappy people I've met. I'm angry. Unhappy people well, that I've makes met. sense though, Matt. It makes sense because look at the, look at the, where the hope lies, you know, for the Christian, the sort of diagnosis by and large is not that different. You know, we, we have, I mean, we may 
uh, sort of quibble about some of the specifics, but in general, we agree that there's a problem, right? There's a problem with the world and things are not as they should be. And so how do we account for that? Well, for the Christian, we look at what God has revealed about the way it should be, about the way we are and the way it could be and will be ultimately in Christ. And we have that framework, which then puts us in a hope for redemption. You know, it's this, this wonderful cycle, this law, gospel, faith, as Ashley Knoll says in his book on Cranmer. You know, we hear the law, we're brought low, we we're, hear the gospel, we're brought up, and we walk out in faith, and we do it again. And there's an incredible, incredible hopefulness about that, and which, which, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. But on the flip side, if what you actually, what is constitutive of your being is just a series of aggressions and, and victimizations, you know, the sort of intersectionality idea, well, then what actually becomes sort of the hope for redemption, getting drilling down deep enough to how many different people have made your life a living hell, you know, and it's like, that's, that's a different way of viewing the world. Now that doesn't, I don't want to minimize the fact that there are people who have made other people's lives living hell. And so, you know, we need to, we can, we can join along with those and try to eradicate partiality and injustice wherever we can find it. But the fundamental assumption getting down to the, to the, uh, to the um, sort of ontological level is like either we are broken agents in need of redemption or we are passive victims who are simply products of powerful forces so much greater than we are that we, that we have no hope. And that's, and that's why it gets so mad. I mean, that's why I think the nihilism, you know, I read this book by James Lindsley called Cynical Theories, and he talks about the idealism of the 60s, where they had these guys who said, actually, you know, if we can just get the social programs together, if we can just get all of these things um, sort of in order, these ducks in a row, well, then utopia can be ushered in. You know, it was like the actual try of Marxism. Like maybe it failed and killed a million, hundred million people all over in Europe, but maybe it would work in, you know, Des Moines or something. Well, now we see that the next generation of that, that idealism turn into cynicism, which the next step from cynicism is nihilism. And nihilistic rage is a very real thing. And so we see people kind of walking around with hopeless nihilistic rage. And given their starting point, it's unsurprising. Because if you were looking for redemption in some horizontal way outside of the intervention of the transcendent God in whose image you were made, who nevertheless sent, had to send his son to redeem you, well, then good luck. Because that's been tried and failed and it will continue to fail. And yet the promise of it will continue to be alluring until... Well, until the Spirit, by His His mercy, uh, brings eyes to see and ears to hear. But but you know that we need to somehow stop preaching that is the least pastoral thing that one could ever consider doing, because it's the only hope that the world has ever known. It reminds me of one of those stress dreams, the one you have where you're late for a final exam and you're running through the school and every room you look in is the <laughs> wrong room and you're like f freaking out. But so that's the search for a savior. You're going into room after room after room and not finding what you need, but you never wake up. You're just there forever. Yeah. And that's that existential anger that you're referring to. And there's a sense in which the actual Good news is that rel that relief you feel when you wake up from one of those dreams. You're like, oh, thank God, I graduated from college, whatever, 25 years ago. <laughs> Just thank God that this search doesn't have to continue. And even though the diagnosis is a hurtful one in the short term, you are a desperate sinner. In fact, you are dead in trespasses and sins. The announcement that your search for a savior can be finished, that it is accomplished in Jesus Christ is, you know, wake up sleeper. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is good news. That's right. 
And I think that's where, you know, the apologetic task, uh, we, the church, we don't need to, to shirk away from this, this particular cultural moment because all of these questions that people are wrestling with have been addressed in the Bible. You know, we have, we're not unaware, like we have an incredibly sophisticated and long, long history of reflecting about, about men and women, for instance, about why would God, you know, have this binary as it were, you know, why is that something worth talking about? What is the, what is the, the results of, of the fall on our mind, will, and emotions? You know, how, how, have our, how has our cognitive ability been affected and how is it can be redeemed? I mean, all of this, all of these are opportunities for people to enter into genuine points of, of despair and disillusionment and, and at the very least preach. You know, we can't control what happens, but we can at least continue to witness and continue to proclaim in the middle of these, these, these acute points of pain in the hopes that God will will save, in, in the in the in the in the confidence, in fact, that He will bring people out of this these points of misery to a to a sen- a new sense of self and a new sense of Him, which um which will set them on an entirely different track. It's just it's going to be events like this where where bastions fall, where new ground is taken by uh, by the enemy. Though it it does, I think, make it very difficult for not just pastors, but the average, the average Christian who has orthodox views, but, you know, doesn't want to, we, we in this, we have not faced this kind of cultural division conflict as, as a Christian church in the United States ever. This is, this is new ground for us. It's not new ground for the church that's been around for 2000 years, but it's new, very new ground for us. And so, you know, I, I, I have parishioners who tell me, I wish you wouldn't talk about sex. I wish, I wish you would, I wish you would just talk about, you know, what we, what we can all agree on. Let's just, let's just talk about the things that our culture would, would agree with us about. And that way we can kind of lure them in. That's right. Very divisive. Uh, And then, (laughs) right, right, right. So, so you don't want to divide by talking about things that, you know, people are going to disagree with you about, but that's precisely what we have to do. We have to, we have to do Mm -hmm. that and, and face the consequences, which, which, are going to possibly be far more than just social. It could be there. They could possibly be legal. Um, you know, the logic of the, of the of the laws of our federal government. I think there there's some safeguards now, or there, there maybe I don't know. I'm mean, gonna have to look at the Supreme Court ruling, but the logic of of our federal government now that same sex marriage is marriage, and that the inner choice of a person to be a certain gender must define how the employer. Uh, that's what Bostock was. Yeah, yeah, Bostock, right? Treats that treats that person. That's the same logic that you had going in the Episcopal Church. This is yeah. this is now a justice issue. Sure. Can't really let people who are who are doing injustice continue to do that if you've already defined this legally as a justice issue. So I, it's just a matter of time before churches are are, are dealt with. Um, well, you know, to that point, I was just reading right before we started this two days ago, Alito and Thomas's um, dissent, or I don't know if it's a petition of some sort, but anyway, they, they essentially were uh, hearkening back to um, Obergefell, which made legal from, you know, the federal down um, same-sex marriage and said that, you know, that needed to be revisited, not necessarily because that every state in the country or every city was going to somehow prescribe same-sex marriage, but precisely to your point, that because of the way that the um, ruling came down, that legal the the legal reality on the ground is that if you disagree with same sex marriage, you could be considered just sort of a, a bigot. You know, you could be you could come into legal uh, ramifications for that. And they said, I think rightly, 
um, that brings into question, you know, the just genuinely held religious views of not just Christians, but Jews and Muslims too. And, and perhaps just sort of maybe secular people who have some of a natural law argument against um, the idea. And, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. The analogy to that uh, was similar to, you mentioned women's ordination in the Episcopal church a while back. And I think that some of the argumentation has been similar was that, you know, there's a genuine, and we've talked about this before, maybe there's a genuine scriptural disagreement, particularly with women's ordination about, you know, whether, to, to what extent, whether it can happen, how it happens, and the ACNA represents that, right? But in the Episcopal Church, it was, the, the implication was, if you disagree with it, you're just a misogynist, a chauvinist and a misogynist, because the actual scriptural grounding was secondary to sort of how it made you feel. And so for 20 plus years, you had people who tried to navigate this and say, well, look, you know, the defensive armament in front was like, well, let me just tell you all things I'm not before we have a discussion about this, you know, and I see similarities to that today, because, you know, if you want to get into an argument about about what Christians can think about these issues and what Christians can talk about. Well, that's, that's a different argument than the, the one that's actually being proffered, which is that you're making people feel bad. So you need to stop talking, you know, you need to stop. And so I think that, um, you know, that where we are going forward is that if we could get this question about, you know, marriage out of the sort of federal mandate uh, back into, you know, local option in the legitimate way, as it were, then what Alito and Thomas at least said was that perhaps compassionate people who wanted to allow for gay marriage and yet also understood that grandma was not some sort of, you know, uh, mouth frothing <laughs> bigot who just hated people, like maybe we could find some middle ground there, you know, who would have thought? And so, I mean, I think to your point, we've got a situation where uh, what we're watching is the, 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 the battle of the nations, you know, the, the kingdom of God, which has a distinct king and rules and regulations and, and um, uh, sort of uh, obeisance where it needs to be laid. And then we have the kingdom of, of darkness, um, where every man did what was on his, right in his own eyes because there was no king, you know, at the end of Judges. And it's like we, we're going to continue to have to navigate that just as they had. I mean, I was reading Ezekiel. Uh, earlier uh, this morning, actually, and just like reading some of his, his, um, Hayward Israelites, you know, uh, and all of their um, sort of comporting with the various idols and other um, ideas. And I was, couldn't help but think about our own wayward church that we'd been a part of and, and, and was grateful at the very least that that was written thousands of years ago. And here we are, we're still here. You know, people are still arguing about the same things. People still have the same um, sinful inclinations. And yet we still continue to be able to preach something greater than, than could ever be imagined into that darkness with with joy you know i mean that's funny we always get painted at least i do as sort of being dour and you know i'm always sort of you know nick you have this wonderful talk about you know how supposedly talking about sin and brokenness and dysfunction and and penance is always or make you this kind of dour you know like those monks and monty python you know like flagellating themselves but the actual converse is entirely true like liza could attest when she met me 20 years ago i was as I was as um, hard charging and hard nosed as, as anyone could ever have met. And the gospel, this actual proclamation of our, of, of the depth of our sinfulness in light of the height of God's grace has actually unlocked uh, quite a, a treasure trove of joy, you know, that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm there are days and there are days, but it, um, it certainly hasn't produced the effect of like the, um, that, that we are accused of it uh, producing. And I'm for that, I'm very grateful. I've had several parishioners say to me, because, you know, I, I spent a lot of time before preaching the gospel in my sermons talking about 
the lostness of the self, right? That that we have no hope in ourselves. And I think like, if what's been, wrong uh, with you, Matt? I know, I know, it's you, crazy. You, you but but, when, but if, you, if you've been kind of raised, you know, if you've just been raised casually in this culture, just gone gone to school, whatever it is, and it's not. Of course, you're going to come out with, oh yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm okay. I'm a pretty good guy. I, I really like myself. Um, so it is kind of a slap in the face to hear, no, no, you're not a good person. You're you're really not good. You're you're really down to the core, down to the very selfie self of you, you're you're really, really bad. That hurts. And so and so I've had pressure that you can't we be positive? And I think what happens is you're, you're I think you're touching on it, Jay, is it you know, what has to happen is someone has to let go of the of the vanity that there's there's something in there to to, to help to help me. Some some way I can some self improvement step I can take, some some method I can follow to get better, some way that I can I can fix fix myself and be happy again. Um, yeah, there's no hope there. There there is no hope there. And once you see that, you're right. There's there is joy because there's it's not just, the message is not just that you're hopeless in yourself, but the message is you have hope in Christ, and you can forget yourself. You can stop focusing on yourself. You can stop yeah. putting so much weight and burden on your choices and and on your uh, on who you are. I mean, if, and if someone accuses you of something doing something wrong, you don't have to immediately say, "No, I'm right. I did it." You, you can say, "Oh, well, maybe I did because I'm a sinner." So let's figure this out. Uh, you have you have freedom from the the weight and the burden of we've said this before of self justification. Yeah. The problem with that though is that you're describing someone that has died, you know, and been raised, and yeah. you know, like we talked about before. You know the the function of death. You know if we're we're holding if we're we're on uh, Jonathan Edwards's um, you know spider web suspended over the cauldron of death. You know we don't fall into that voluntarily. We just finally lose our grip. You know, and I think <laughs> I think that that's where for me. And we've talked about this before, but there's repeating. You know that's what the repetition of the preaching of the gospel is because I view, I view it like a like a tumbler falling. You know people are just spinning locks. Um, you know this is to those of you who are under forty. They used to have locks before they just <laughs> scanned your face and send it to a, um, a data farm in China. But anyway, um, so, you know, it's a tumbler spinning and who knows at what point the, the, the tumbler is going to fall. And, you know, that happens in church or it happens in, in through proclamation or, or, or interpersonal, you know, faith comes by hearing. And so the refrain continues to be the same. Well, I don't really see it. I didn't see it. And then I've had the experience and I'm sure you have both personally and as a pastor, people come back, you know, five, 10 years later and say, that's what you were talking about. You know, and I was like, yeah, I'm sorry you had to, you know, in some cases, like, I'm really sorry you had to find out that way, you know, like, you know, nice neck tattoo or whatever. But, um, but, uh, but, but at the other hand, you're like, you know, I pray for you and for my kids and for myself that it is, it is a severe mercy. Take me, take, take this, you know, do what you need to do, but as gently as possible, you know, Hebrews 13. But for some people, uh, you know, I mean, the old stiff neck, I mean, what the prophet just said over and over again, you know, my stiff necked people like, well, that could be a painful process. But on the other side of it, it's an altogether new creation. You know, the old is gone and the new has come, as Paul said. And so I think that's what will continue to keep us um, holding fast to the supposedly cruel and hard-edged um, diagnosis about the human person, because like Bishop Love was trying to do, 
You know, he's saying, listen, we love people and this is actually unloving. You know, the, the proverb says the compassion of the wicked is cruelty. Um, well, that's exactly what the Episcopal Church, by its official teaching and doctrine, is now perpetuating to the world, that this is somehow nicer for me to deny what God has said and continue to bless what he has said is not, in fact, a blessable, blessable, blessable um, relationship in, in the way that is comported. And somehow that will be seen as a, as a Christian way forward. Well, that's just, you know, the numbers are bearing that out. Like that, that may be as long as the endowment lasts, but that certainly won't be what our grandchildren are confronted with, um, or certainly not their, their children. Yeah, it's certainly interesting contrast, you know, between, you guys remember the, the, the sermon that Bishop Curry preached, or the presiding Bishop Curry preached at the royal wedding between Harry and Meghan, and like everyone was, for, oh, it's all about love and Jesus is love and love is love and love is love is love. Love is so lovable. I mean, everybody just falling over themselves. But what a wonderful sermon that was. I mean, really, if you were listening to it, it was basically law, you know, love of God, love of yeah, God. That's right. That's right. So it was, it was a horrible sermon. Um, but um, but yeah, I wonder if people in the in the popular who are just kind of reading the news headlines will make the connection between the guy who preached that sermon and the the church that's you know, busy, no. busy casting out a bishop. Well, that's the thing. It's easy to cast out the, the meanie bishop. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. like, I think people will read that and say, well, of course the love bishop thinks that yeah. the hate bishop gets um, kicked <laughs> out, even though his name is love. Like, who's on first? <laughs> love's, on, love's on the dock, you know, but it's funny, Matt, and this is the problem. And Nick and I have been saying this together in, in, for many years now, you know, the question, everybody knows that God is love, but nobody knows from the Bible, how he loves, you know, and, and if you just can't articulate that enough, you know, first John four nineteen, you know, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us as a propitiation, you know, um, an expiation, he lost most like this is, these are not happy words for the people or unless there had been an expiation or propitiation for them. Um, that means there was wrath involved. There was and atoning there was sacrifice is what That's that right. word means. And so we continue to, to preach that to the heights of the, you know, hills or whatever, because love in and of itself, as we've talked about, is not good news, you know, because it, it's a, it's the law. Like you should do all sorts of things, but if we know how love has been constituted and that how God has shown his love, um, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well then again, that changes the whole, the whole thing. And I'm, I'm sad for Bishop love, <laughs> um, you know, but at the same time, I actually hope and I trust that in his, despite his, you know, sort of professional probable rearrangement that may come from this, that he uh, sleeps well at night. You know, I mean, it's not something he wants to have happen, but you know, when he took those vows, first as a deacon, then a priest and a bishop, you know, that in, that included the possibility of getting, you know, who would have thought questioned and possibly objected to about what the Bible had said over against what uh, the culture is saying. And he has stood firm and he's someone to be respected. And I am grateful um, for him d despite the discomfort that he's going through, because it does give me hope that there are people who have yet refused to, well, to bend the knee as it were. And, um, and so we'll continue to watch his exit or whatever the case may be. But, um, but I certainly would welcome him into our uh, church if that would be the case um, and look forward to, to meet him in person someday and saying, you know, thank you for, for giving some inspiration and some courage to a, a younger um, guy who, you know, possibly could face the same thing. And I could at least point to you and say, been there, seen that, and um, we can do it too. 
Well, we have reached the end of our time. Those are nice, encouraging words to end on, though, as is our custom. I know I say it every week. We've, we've left a bunch of things on the table that we could have said. Um, if you want to keep the conversation going, though, please do be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email, mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. We are planning a mailbag episode coming up soon, so that'll be, that'll be fun. We do so appreciate your taking the time to join us today. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.